In fact, some doctors argued that hypertension was a made-up disorder that didn't need to be treated at all. For instance, in 1931, Dr. J.H.A. proclaimed, quote, the greatest danger to a man with high blood pressure lies in its discovery because then some fool is certain to try and reduce it, unquote. He continues on and writes, tragic results followed from this idea. Consider the true case of Frank. Frank was diagnosed with hypertension in 1937 at the age of 54. His blood pressure was 162 over 98 and was considered by physicians at the time to be mild hypertension, 162 over 98. No treatment was initiated. By 1940, his blood pressure was running at 180 over 88. In 1941, his pressure was 188 over 105. He was encouraged to cut back on smoking and work, but his condition didn't improve. By 1944, his pressure was running higher and he suffered a series of small strokes. This was followed by classic symptoms of heart failure. So he was placed on a low-salt diet with hydrotherapy and experienced some improvement. But by February 1945, his pressure was 260 over 145. And on April 12, 1945, he complained of a severe headache with his blood pressure measuring at 300 over 190. He lost consciousness and died later that day at the age of 63. You probably know him better as Franklin Delano Roosevelt, FDR, or 32nd President of the United States. He had serious heart issues, and the professionals of his day failed to address those serious heart issues, and in a very much similar way as we look at this particular passage, we think the world, too, has some very serious heart issues, and they refuse to address the issues of the heart, whereas Jesus, in contrast here, sees this man's dire need, and it is not that he might be able to walk again. This lame man is presented to the Lord Jesus Christ by his desperate friends, and he sees the real issue, and it's an issue of his heart. And he meets that man's greatest need. That man's greatest need is God's forgiveness. And that's what we read of here in this particular passage. It is a heart issue. And what we see here in this particular section from chapter 2 all the way to chapter 3, verse 6, is a series of five separate incidences all involving Jesus and his conflict with the religious leaders of that day. The first issue we see here, and it begins to build all the way to chapter 3, verse 6. It begins here where these religious leaders, these scribes are merely reasoning in their heart and Jesus knows what they're thinking. But then we go on to 2.16 and they complain about Jesus... To his disciples. 
And then after that, in 2.24, they complain about what Jesus is letting his disciples do. And then in chapter 3, verse 6, they begin to conspire against Jesus for Jesus' death and how to destroy him all the way to the final conflict, the pinnacle of the conflict we see also in Matthew chapter 12. And what we see in chapter 3, verse 22, they accuse Jesus of partnering with Satan himself to do the things that he does. The escalating conflict will eventually culminate in Jesus' crucifixion, which is a major part of the book of Mark. But this is the first incident, the first conflict recorded by Mark here in Mark chapter 2 of the forgiveness and healing of this paralytic. And what it does, it exemplifies the contrast between the thoughts of the religious leaders, their perspective on the whole issue, and the thoughts and the perspective of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the Lord Jesus Christ sees this man's spiritual need above and beyond his physical need. The greatest need that people have in their spiritual life is to be right with God. So let's look at this first incident here. And the context is found in verses 1 and 2 with this crowded house. He comes back to Capernaum, it says, after several days, and they heard that he was at home. You might recall at the, at the back end, in the end of Mark chapter 1, the end of Mark chapter 1, he had healed, he had healed a man who had leprosy. And he tells this man, he tells this man, see in verse 44, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest. Don't tell anybody, he says, but this man in verse 45, he went out and began to proclaim it freely and spread the news all around. This man did exactly, this leprous man in the previous chapter did exactly what Jesus told him not to do. And the consequences were that to such an extent, Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city, but stayed out in the unpopulated areas, and they were coming to him from everywhere. This wasn't what Jesus wanted. He didn't want a bunch of looky-loos coming on to see what he was going to do, gaping at all of his miracles. He wasn't there to have a big crowd, a big fan base. He wasn't there for all of the people who would bring all of their sick. He wasn't there to be a, a mobile hospital for them, no. He was there to preach the gospel of God. That is what he said. It wasn't about all the popularity. And that can easily happen. Jonathan Edwards writes in his Religious Affections, quote, related to these days, an increase in speculative knowledge in divinity is not what is so much needed by our people as something else. Men may abound in this sort of light and have no heart. Our people do not need to have their heads turned as to have their hearts touched. And they stand in the greatest need of that sort of preaching, which has the greatest tendency to do this, unquote. The whole point of it was this, is that Jesus didn't come to garner a huge crowd in order to be a healing ministry. He came to preach the gospel of God. That is what he says. He's come to preach the gospel of God, and some time had passed, and he returned because you see these crowds had passed and apparently maybe some of the crowd had begun to fade away as he'd gone to various villages around the smaller towns. But it says in verse 1, he came back to Capernaum after several days. And that phrase, several days, could mean several days or it could actually mean a longer period of time, such as several weeks. But he came and it was heard that he was at home. 
Now, some people take this that Jesus owned a house, but it seems to be a better understanding that he was at home because he was previously at Peter's place and Andrew's place. Some might think that he was perhaps given a home to, to reside in while he was at Capernaum, but he goes back to Capernaum and he's here at this house, probably again Peter's house, but he goes back to Capernaum, which begins, as we will see in the, in the future, that begins to really, really his, his home base of operations, by which in Capernaum he's going to minister to many in Galilee. But once again, the crowds hear that he's here, and they flock to Peter's home. They flock to where Jesus is, just like flies to a light bulb. There are many people that show up, and it was jam-packed. People who were, came to see Jesus, they were hanging out, listening watching, seeing, wanting to squeeze in. What was Jesus doing? It says he was teaching, he was teaching the word. He was speaking the word to them. Then there comes the scene of these friends, these persistent friends. And you can ask yourself, do you have friends like this? And they came, it says there's four of them, they brought him a paralytic. Being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they moved, removed the roof above him, and when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. Now, in the parallel passage of Luke chapter 5, 17, it tells them that this paralytic was on a bed, likely kind of a mattress with straw stuffed into it. They bring this paralytic, and it's so cramped, it's so, uh, you know, packed that they can't get through the front door, so they, what they do is they go up onto the roof. They go up on the roof, and you have a little picture on the back of your sermon notes there of a, of a house that was typical of that time. A typical home would be one story, probably about 15 feet high, cut out there, and we'd divide it into two levels, but a 15-foot high roof in which there would be a flat roof, and there'd be a staircase on the outside. It'd be a flat roof because they would use the outside, or they would use the roof as well to, 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 to you know, lounge around in the heat after the heat of the day went out. They would use the roof of their house sometimes to entertain or whatnot. So it was a walkable roof. It would have beams, and then they would use, uh, they would use uh, uh, various branches, and there would be cross beams, rafters, etc., and there would be mud, tiles. And so it would be one of these things that would be made of earthen tiles, a roof that would keep out the sun, a roof that would keep out the rain, but a roof that was still not too difficult for men to dig a hole through the roof, to dig a hole through the roof. And they lowered him down to Jesus. And this is an amazing scene. This is an amazing scene. And you think to yourself, do you have friends like this? Can you imagine these four friends? These four friends carrying this man to see Jesus. They're boxed out by the crowd. Their friends are so determined on behalf of their paralyzed friend that they dig a hole in someone else's roof. I mean, we have friends. Do you have friends who would do that? I don't know if I'd do that for my friend. Perhaps maybe you can think about yourself. Do you, you, you know the friends that you have? I mean, imagine to yourself, imagine if it was your house. Here you are, it's packed. Jesus has come. You didn't expect such a large crowd, and already people are complaining. I didn't invite that guy. Did that guy respond to the Evite? They never respond to Evites. You know, what is their problem? And then they'll blame you, the host. So you didn't plan well enough. It's all your fault. And here you begin to see all of the, what? plasterboard begin to fall down as you see this hole, and it's a gaping hole. You're talking about maybe, what, five feet by three feet? 
come down. I know I'd honestly be thinking, what in the world are these people doing? Who's going to fix my roof? And I would be, you know, not, not too happy. They've ruined my roof. Others would be thinking to themselves, what in the world is happening? But these friends, these were very dedicated friends. These were very dedicated friends that wanted their paralyzed friend to see Jesus. To see Jesus. They couldn't get through, so they did what they could to bring this friend of theirs to see Jesus. And the question for you and I is, how far are you willing to go that your friend or your relative or someone you know would be able to see Jesus? You know, I remember many years ago when I was a student, there were some very caring parents and caring youth leaders in, in the student ministries and growing up in our church. And many of the students came Many of them came because some parent or some relative would see their friend or their relative or something happen and they'd invite that friend or relative's son or daughter to come to church. They'd invite that son or daughter to come to church. And not only would they invite them, they would be willing to drive them. They'd offer to drive them, offer to drop them off, offer to pick them up, all because they saw somebody who had a need. I remember one kid, one kid who came when he was in junior high. I still remember where he came. He came wearing this blue jacket, and his hair was matted because some family member had heard about this friend whose father had passed away. And he thought, you know what, this child, this, this, this boy in junior high needs to, needs, to know, needs to come to church. They invited him to church. I still remember that day because I remember thinking to myself, I mean, the Sunday school lesson on that day was a terrible Sunday school lesson. It wasn't even from the Bible. And I thought to myself, my, I was so embarrassed as a junior high kid. I was thinking to myself, that guy is not going to come back to church. And you know what? He came back the next week, and the next week he came to know the Lord. He ended up on the church basketball team, became a longtime good friend of mine, went to seminary, became a pastor, and now has a nice family. All because somebody saw that this young kid had a need, a need to hear about Jesus and was willing to reach out, to offer to pick him up, drop him, drop him off, come and drive him to and from church. I had a number of friends like that, friends who would come in from out of town, and some parent or some relative would say, hey, you know what, they're new in town, they need some friends, and why don't we ask you, would you like to come to church? Be willing to go and pick them up, drive them to, would you be willing to do something simple like that? How far would you go so that someone would come to know the Savior? These friends were willing to dig through the roof of a home that wasn't even there because they wanted their friend to see Jesus. And unlike... Sinners such as us who would be so concerned about the roof and their rudeness, Jesus saw something else. Verse 5, Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, this is a phenomenal response for a number of reasons. This is a phenomenal response for a number of reasons. First of all, as I mentioned before, Jesus saw this man's real need. He saw this man's real need. Rather than being irritated that the, there's a hole in the roof or that maybe his teaching of the Word of God was disturbed by this, rather than being somehow, uh, you know, sort of uh, focused on his disability, 
Rather than being focused on his friends, Jesus saw this man's greatest need, and his greatest need was that of the forgiveness of God because of this man's problem, and that problem was a problem of sin. Sin is a source of our guilt and our shame. Guilt is not a bad thing, as some people might teach. Guilt comes because we are guilty people, because there is sin. There was no guilt in the world before sin entered in the world in Genesis chapter 3. We are guilty before God. We are worthy of condemnation. And this man, this man had a problem. His problem wasn't merely physical. It was a spiritual problem. You see, this man's problem would extend even into eternity if it had not been solved because there are physical disabilities, our aches, our pains, our health issues, our employment. They're all temporal and limited to this life. But the issue of sin needs to be dealt with. The heart issue needs to be dealt with. And if it's not dealt with, the consequences are major in the life to come. So what Jesus did, he granted to this man something far greater than anyone would have expected, and perhaps even this man would have expected, and in doing so, what he did was he stated himself as God. He stated himself, presented himself as God. Jesus didn't need to make that claim directly, no, he simply did what only God could do. Secondly, not only did Jesus see this man's real need, this man saw his need. I believe this man saw his need. This man readily knew he was a sinner. In fact, he may even believe that his, in the prevailing view of the day, the prevailing view of the day in that time, in, in biblical times, was that sin caused physical illness. That somebody was sick or somebody was ill because of sin. Now that may be the case, but not necessarily. But in, in the time of the scriptures, Eliphaz, you remember Eliphaz, who was a friend of Job. In the book of Job, Job lost everything. He lost his family. He lost his kids, I should say. His kids all died at the same time. He, he had all of his herds and his, his livestock taken from him. He began to lose his health. He lost everything. And his friend Eliphaz comes, he has three friends, sat with him for a week, which was the best week of his life, perhaps, with his suffering. In Job chapter 4, Eliphaz says to him, remember now, whoever perished being innocent, or where were the upright destroyed? In other words, Job, the reason why you've lost everything and all your children have died is because you're not righteous, you're not upright. Whoever heard of somebody like that? The same sentiment is expressed in John chapter 9, verse 2, where the disciples are walking along with Jesus, and they see a blind man, and they say to Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus goes on to say, neither, neither. The prevailing view of the day was that if you were lame, if you had leprosy, if you had some sort of physical ailment, well, it was because you sinned or maybe your parents sinned or something like that. Now, we know that sickness and suffering comes because of the principle of sin in the world, and sometimes it may come because of personal sin, but not all the time. It's not always the case. But this man, this man probably probably even saw himself as a greater sinner because of his paralyzed state. And by the response of Jesus, we know this man saw himself as a sinner. Why? Because God doesn't forgive sinners without the sinner recognizes his own sin. 
God just doesn't go around and Jesus doesn't go around, your sins are forgiven, your sins are forgiven, your sins are forgiven. No, he sees this man's heart. And this man's heart saw himself as a sinner in need, in need of forgiveness, in need of a savior. And that brings us to number three. Not only do I believe that Jesus saw this man's real need and this man himself, number two, saw his own need, but thirdly, his friends saw Jesus as more than just a healer. His friends saw Jesus as more than a healer. The Bible notes that Jesus saw their faith. And I think that encompasses all his friends, the four friends who dug through the roof and lowered their friend down. The implication of Jesus not only seeing their faith of what Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, leads me to believe they saw him as much more than just a healer. They saw him as perhaps the Messiah, the one who could grant life and forgiveness because it drove them to do something so dramatic. If Jesus was just a healer, if Jesus was just a medicine man, somebody who could dispense you know, healing powers or whatever, they, they could just wait outside. They could just wait outside until, but they wanted so desperately this man, their friend, to meet Jesus. They did what they did because they saw his power and Jesus saw this man's real need. The question to you and I are, what is more important to you? Even as we look at Jesus, Jesus saw this man's real need and that was his greatest, greatest need his own relationship with God. How important is that to you? How important is that to you as a parent? Is it more important than their physical need, your children? Is it more important that your children walk with God, have a life of sacrificial service to God, have a life of self-denial, have an upright life that leads to holiness? Or is it more important that one have more vacation time, be entertained, be happy, have a good education? What's more important to you, the physical needs and their temporal happiness or their eternal salvation, whether or not they live a life that's pleasing to God, their understanding of Scripture or their understanding of their schoolwork? Which more time do you dedicate your focus, do you see through the eyes of Jesus the needs of others that are great, their spiritual needs? God wants to forgive. Jesus saw this man's greatest need, and that is the forgiveness of God. God wants to forgive. As Erwin Lutzer said, there is more grace in God's heart than there is sin in your past. God wants to grant grace Grace that will forgive our sin if we come in repentance to Him. To be right with God, far more important, far more important than our physical needs. But not everybody saw that. We have a case of some judgmental scribes in verse 6 and 7. These scribes sat around. They weren't bothered, it seems, by the hole in the ceiling. They were bothered by what Jesus did. They reasoned in their hearts, it says in verse 6, why does this man speak this way? Verse 7, he is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? 
Now, in the broader context of the religious system, there were the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and each of them had scribes underneath them. This is likely the scribes underneath the Pharisees. Sometimes they're called lawyers, these scribes, and they were, they were in charge of copying the law. They were in charge of, of interpreting and make sure it was applied. The scribes were those who were also legalists, and they were those who tried to pick, nitpick as to whether or not Jesus would be following every, every letter of the law. And they were offended. They were offended that Jesus had forgiven this man's sin because they were thinking to themselves, only God could forgive sins. And so you only had two choices. One, Jesus is God. Or two, Jesus is not God. And if he's not God, he's blaspheming. And you know what? They were right in the fact that only God could forgive sins but they were wrong in their conclusion because Jesus is God. Now, to the Jew of that day, blasphemy was the most egregious, the most horrendous crime. The most egregious sin you could commit was the sin of blasphemy. But even in the most egregious sin, they had three levels, should I say, three levels of seriousness of blasphemy. You could, at the first level, blaspheme by, by speaking against the law of God. By speaking against the word of God. That's what they accused Stephen of in Acts chapter 6. That's what they accused Paul of in Acts chapter 21. Speaking against the word of God. That is considered blasphemy in the eyes of the Jew, the first century Jew. And that was a very serious, serious sin. They ended up stoning Stephen for, you know, proclaiming that he could see Jesus or see God. The second was more serious than the first. And that was to speak evil of God himself, to blaspheme against God himself. The first was his word. The second was of God himself. If somebody had cursed God, according to Leviticus 24, they should be put to death. They would be put to death. That was immediate. Thirdly, the worst type of blasphemy in the eyes of the first century Jew was when someone took the place of God by claiming equality with God or claiming the authority that only God could have. It was the worst of all types of blasphemy that could be committed and it was looked upon as a cringing disdain for that individual. And that is what they accused Jesus of in John 5, John 8, and John 10. And it would become their justification to crucify Jesus later on in John 19. That Jesus had taken the authority, claimed to be God, he'd taken the authority by God, and to them it was the worst. So they were sitting there. They were reasoning in their hearts, just thinking to themselves, that this man is not God, and he's committing blasphemy. And they would make this error many times over because they refused to hear the truth. And they responded by being quick to judge, quick to judge Jesus so many times we can be the same way, to be so quick to judge, not hearing, reasoning bad things in our mind's eye, motives of others, or whatever it may be. But what does Jesus do? Rather than arguing with them, Jesus shows them. He simply shows them his authority. Immediately, Jesus, verse 8, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, why are you reasoning about these things in your heart? God knows. You see, God knows every single thing that you are thinking, even in your heart. The thoughts that you ponder, even in your heart, God knows. He knows now what you're thinking. He knows what you're thinking, even at this time. He knows whether or not you're even paying attention. I don't know. Well, you know, 
bad thoughts, angry thoughts, maybe whatever you're thinking of. Maybe you're thinking about lunch. I have no idea. But he knows everything that is in, and Jesus displays his omniscience here in that he knows what they're thinking, and Jesus says to them, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or say, get up and pick up your pallet and walk? He asks, which is easier to say, not which is easier to do. In other words, anyone can say what they want to say and claim what they want to claim, but to show by some verifiable proof, that's even harder. So, he does this. So that you may know, verse 10, that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And he tells this paralytic, pick up your pallet and go home. To show all that he had, power over authority over the physical as well as the spiritual realm, Jesus healed the lame man. After all, you can imagine if they too, which the scribes likely did, If they too believed in the prevailing view of the day that this man was was paralyzed because of sin, because of the consequences of sin, and he raises and he heals this man in front of them, you can imagine the testimony that it would be to them. That this man who is stricken because of sin, that's what would be in the scribe's mind, I believe, now is healed by the hand of Jesus, he too would have authority. He too would have authority to forgive sin. Later on, all it did was anger them. Sad to say, that's what happened to them. But right in front of everyone, the atrophied muscles would come to play. This man would stand up, well known that he couldn't walk. They were all amazed, it says, gave glory to God. The word means astonished. They were dumbfounded. They were were absolutely astonished. They were filled, Luke says, Luke 5, 26 in the parallel passage. They were filled with fear, saying, we have seen remarkable things today. But yet John also tells us in John 12, but though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him, unquote. Jesus was there in person. He healed many. He amazed many people. He said, praise God. Praise God. Wow, this is amazing. We've seen things we've never seen before. And Jesus' ministry nearly eradicated or eradicated pretty much the diseases that were there in Galilee with all these people casting out demons. It tells us in chapter 1, healing people so many times, and yet people would not believe causes us to pause, doesn't it? Causes us to pause because many times we may say, if only, if only, if only someone had shared the gospel with my friend, my spouse, my child, if only somebody had done something about this or that, they would be walking with Christ today. If only, I'm sure people would say that, If only Jesus would show up and show them miracle upon miracle after miracle upon person after person of healing them, casting out demons, they would be so passionate about Jesus today. No way. No way. There's no guarantee. The Galileans saw with their own eyes. The Galileans had first-hand witnesses of being able to see and hear from the lips of Jesus the truth of the Word of God. And no, they didn't believe. They didn't turn. Because God himself is the one who opens the eyes of a heart 
that is blind. He is the one who gives life to the one who is already dead, dead in sin. And that is the real need of people. The greatest need of people is for God to regenerate the heart, to open the eyes of the blind and draw them to himself. They need forgiveness, the forgiveness of sins. So when we look through people and we see needs of people, what do we see? Do we see through the eyes of Jesus, seeing that the ultimate need of these people is a savior, the need for them to hear the gospel, the need that is there is not just a physical need, but that is a greater need of a spiritual need. Because the world has all sorts of programs. The world has all sorts of programs and all sorts of things that we can become involved in. In our city, for example, there's, all the, there's a huge homeless population because of the cost of housing. There's food banks, community service opportunities. There's all sorts of immunization programs. There's all sorts of programs for micro-lending, programs to alleviate social injustices such as human trafficking, programs for health and human services, programs and things that, that people put on for racial reconciliation, programs for mental health, etc. And there is a certain goodness to each one of these things because they do provide some sort of service or good thing, but do we see that the greater need beyond that is that they might hear about Jesus and that they might have forgiveness of sins? Because when this man was lowered down, everyone saw that he was a paralytic. But who besides Jesus saw that he was a sinner in need of God's forgiveness? besides perhaps that man and his friends. We need to be people who will aim for that which is the greatest need, that people need a savior. And he extends his forgiveness and he extends his grace to all who would come. Doesn't matter how bad of a person you may be. I remember standing next to a custodian once and talking with this custodian, inviting this custodian to join, to join our church for worship and to hopefully win him to the Lord. And his comment to me was, no, I don't think I can because of what I've done. I don't think I can because of what I've done. And we had a conversation. Apparently, there were some very, very terrible things that he had done in his past, and he felt that he couldn't come before God. But it's exactly those people who need to come. Exactly people who need to come to the cross because you don't have to clean up your life before you come to Christ. You come to Christ and Christ will help you clean up your life. And God says to all, if we confess our sins in 1 John 1.9, He is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, which is all by His grace, just as we sing, marvelous, infinite, matchless grace, Freely bestowed on all who believe, you that are longing to see his face, will you this moment his grace receive? Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. And when we see people, may we look through the eyes of Jesus to see their greatest need, the greatest need of God's grace, granting to them forgiveness of sins and the gift of eternal life. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, you have blessed us with the privilege of knowing 
the gospel of grace. You've also blessed us with the privilege of knowing people who have needs, people who don't know you. I pray, Father, grant to us the courage as well to reach out in love to those who need you. Far greater than any work that we could ever do, far greater than any community service that we could ever do, far greater than any volunteer work that we could ever do that only meets physical needs, is the great privilege of bringing the gospel of peace, the message of forgiveness, and salvation to those who need to hear. May we be so bold, O oh God, to do so. In Jesus' name, amen.